Time for swordplay. Alex, one of the judges of BET's Sunday Best said that the quarantine is shaking church leaders to see what's in their hearts. How about you? What's in your heart? Well, Nick, what's in my heart is mostly mid-90s X-Men cartoons. Hey, mon ami. Easy, not too much of the song. If you, play, if you, if you sing too much of the song, we'll have to play, pay royalties and we'll get kicked off the air and all that. <laughs> it's still the most epic intro song ever. It is. It's fantastic. This is Swordplay. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, the apocalypse of Zephaniah. Is that in the Old Testament or New Testament, Alex? (laughs) We'll say somewhere in between. In fact, apocalypse of Zephaniah, ah, most people have probably never heard of it. Even scholars see it as uh, sort of a neglected book within what will be called the Pseudepigrapha. And so we're going to talk about that. Why would we why would we talk about this? We did finish up a series on the book of Zephaniah, so we thought, ah, why not the apocalypse of Zephaniah? But lots of interesting things in store for you today. But we got to ask, what is it, Nick? What's the apocalypse of Zephaniah? Yeah, this is a seemingly Jewish work, uh, perhaps even Hellenistic purporting to be a work from the Old Testament minor prophet Zephaniah. However, as we'll explain in more detail in a few minutes, internal evidence uh, not only works against a Zephaniah authorship, but may indicate Christian influence as well, uh, especially uh, in 10 uh, verse 9 of Apocalypse of Zephaniah. You have mention of catechumens, which is... A pretty distinctive Christian term, but uh, for me, Apocalypse of Zephaniah is an early example of Jewish speculative fiction with Christian influence and also with uh, that heavy apocalyptic flavor to it. Uh, Both the angelology and the eschatology of this work are highly speculative. Uh, So that's my take. Alex, what do you think? Well, in uh, Charles Worth's Old Testament Pseudepigrapha, which is the translation we used for, for this study, the author that introduces the book of the Apocalypse of Zephaniah is O.S. Wintermute. Your boy, Orville. Orville. Is that, is that really his name? Yeah. That's great. <laughs> Orville Wintermute, and he lays out the arguments for why this is a Jewish work written originally in Greek and composed before A.D. 70, with a range between the 1st century B.C. and 1st century A.D. Wintermute lays out his reasoning for why this is probably not a Christian work, which I found compelling, uh, maybe not you, but if it is a Christian work or a Christian-influenced work, then to me it's still fascinating to see perhaps where 1st century Christian thought was concerning the afterlife. Speculative speculative fiction, perhaps, but on the basis, I think, of real elements that people already believed and thought were true. Uh, Otherwise, I don't think it would have become so popular. Not popular today, but I think when it was around, it was popular, and there are things um, that lead people to believe that. We'll get more into that later. But in other words, I just want to say, speculative fiction doesn't necessarily mean one-of-a-kind perspective. So it's important to look at the elements of this story and see what the biblical touch points are and how that may inform our reading of the biblical text based on 
first century worldview understandings. So very interesting stuff. Nick, what is an apocalypse? Yeah, so I guess we'll take a step back here. And, and, and the word apocalypse, it it's comes an from— right? He was one of the bad guys. That's right. That's right. Um, <laughs> not the movie. you got to go back to the cartoons for the good apocalypse. But anyway, right. uh, the word apocalypse comes from the Greek word apocalypsis. I mean, you can even hear it, right, in our English. Uh, it meant revelation or unveiling. In other words, something was covered or hidden— and it was being uncovered and thereby unhidden. And so apocalyptic literature, generally speaking, are those writings which reveal something hidden, usually something having to do with the future. Our Bibles are full of apocalyptic literature. Notable examples would include prophetic texts, Daniel's prophecy, which reveal the coming world powers after Babylon. They're a good example of apocalyptic literature. In the New right. Testament, Revelation, yep. in the original, is called the Apocalypse of John. Uh, and from uh, and from that, of course, again, like I said, we get our English word apocalypse from that. Uh, but Revelation is, and by the way, singular, not plural. Whenever you see it in Hollywood movies or television, it's always Revelations, Book of Revelation. The Book of Revelations, it's coming uh, true. It's singular, folks. Uh, look it up, it's in the Bible. Anyway, um, <laughs> Uh, it's an example of apocalyptic literature. Typically, when one speaks about apocalyptic literature, what is especially in mind are prophetic texts which convey the end of the world or the end of the present order. So texts which contain kind of that end of the world or world-ending cataclysmic language like Joel 2. We've talked about that uh, yeah. book in previous episodes. Isaiah 24 is another example. These are usually classified under the category of apocalyptic literature. At the same time, this genre may include narratives in which uh, the author has an experience with a supernatural being, an angelic being, uh, who's their guide and informs them concerning what they are seeing and what is to come. And so I think of like the, the second half of Daniel is probably a good example of this. The latter prophecies there where Gabriel shows up with a message. Uh, certain episodes in Revelation where John encounters an angelic, uh, angelic being are examples of this kind of narrative format where stuff is revealed with the help of an angelic messenger. So, again, it shows up in our Bibles That's in right. several places. Uh, Alex, do you find any other places where apocalyptic literature shows up in the Bible? Yeah, you mentioned the prophets, uh, Old Testament prophets. The book of Zechariah and his visions with his angelic guide, those are another good example of the typical apocalyptic format. In fact, uh, scholars note that the apocalypse of Zephaniah that we're going to go over today, it's actually more similar to the Old Testament book of Zechariah than it is to the namesake uh, Old Testament book, Zephaniah. So, for example, uh, in the Apocalypse of Zephaniah and the book of Zechariah, each have an encounter with the accuser in their journey of visions. And there are other overlaps, like we mentioned, with the angelic guide and uh, similar things that we'll touch along as we go through chapter summaries. But, Nick, talk to us a little bit about why would we want to learn about this book? It's not in my Bible. Uh, I've never heard of it. Nobody's ever asked me any questions about it. There's no weird, um, you know, cult 
that my neighbor's a part of that worships, uh, you know, Zephaniah or something like that, right? So what's the problem here? Why are we even looking at this book? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And in fact, uh, Richard Bauckham, who's a, an English New Testament scholar, now retired from the University of St. Andrews, wrote an article in 1986. Good year, right, Alex? That's right. Uh, for the, the, the Journal of New Testament Studies. And um, uh, he, he wrote that the apocalypse of Zephaniah has been, and I quote, extraordinarily neglected, end quote, by scholars. Nearly three and a half decades later, I think that assessment still seems appropriate. In fact, I went looking for scholarly articles and journals uh, pertaining to the apocalypse of Zephaniah, and I couldn't find any. And I even looked at the uh, Journal for the Study of the Pseudepigrapha. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I just I couldn't find any. Maybe my search you know, wasn't specific enough or something, but um, it really is uh, a neglected book. And so why study it? Well, for one, as you mentioned earlier, Alex, we just finished a three-part study on the canonical book of Zephaniah. And so here's a work which someone somewhere wrote, I guess as like an homage to that prophet, uh, kind of assuming his identity on this uh, apocalyptic journey. Sure. But second, uh, and as we'll discuss, there were Christians, including one early church writer, Clement of Alexandria, who apparently knew about the apocalypse of Zephaniah and read some form of this text. And so uh, it was, uh, it had. Uh, some popularity. I don't know how popular it was, but especially down Alexandria Way, uh, there's a heavy Egyptian influence, which I'll describe uh, when we get into the book itself. People down Egypt Way were reading it back then, and it had uh, some popularity in that area. So uh, again, Christians then were studying it, or at least reading it. And so I think it's still has some profit, and and we'll we'll dig into that again when we get to the book. But uh, so that's that's what I think, Alex. But why do you think we should learn or study the Apocalypse of Zephaniah? Well, I think some form of this book or oral tradition of the story left an impact on Christian writers. Now, if the book really was written in the first century A.D., then it at the very least should be used as a comparative text in helping us with our study of Revelation, right? That is a canonical New Testament book, and uh, it was written contemporarily then with the Apocalypse of Zephaniah. So like this book, um, there are other books that we call Apocrypha or Pseudepigrapha, and it fills in the gap between Old Testament and New Testament uh, writings and theology. It gives us the best insight, I think, into the worldview of the biblical writers and the early church. And so when we come across the book of Revelation, we're not reading things that were novel or brand new to the audience to which it was written. It uses imagery and things already familiar to the audience, not familiar to us, but when we read books like the Apocalypse of Zephaniah, it makes it more familiar to us. We're like, oh, this same thing was used over here in this other writing, not a canonical writing, but still the same thing. And it helps us to understand some of the uh, more difficult writings in our Bible, like apocalyptic literature. I think most importantly, though, we should learn about this book because it really is a fun book to read. I mean, it's not that long, and it's pretty—it's it's just fun. I like it. So that's my reason, Nick. 
Well, when do you think the Apocalypse of Zephaniah was written? I mentioned a few dates, you know, along the way, but what do you think, Nick? When do you think it was written? Yeah, uh, so the question of date. Uh, so two manuscripts uh, survive. Uh, not a lot, not a lot of text there, but in fact, um, if I remember right, it's only like a, th- a fourth, a quarter of the whole text, or at least what would have been the text of Zephaniah, according to calculations of some scholars. But two manuscripts survive. Both are in a Coptic dialect, uh, one Akmimic, the other uh, Sahidic. The earlier of the two uh, manuscripts, the Akmimic, dates to the 5th century A.D. However, both internal and external evidence serve to help us zero in on a range for dating this work. And these evidences kind of provide the edges for the range of the date of the Apocalypse of Zephaniah. So internally, what's actually in the book that kind of gives us some evidence of the dating? So, and, and we'll we'll talk about the, in more detail uh, this part of the book, but at one point the author is recounting his descent into Hades. And he reports seeing a hideous angelic being who is apparently the guardian of Hades. In terror... Zephaniah, quote-unquote, right? Uh, He cries out to God in prayer. Part of his prayer, he mentions Susanna, uh, the the woman from the deuterocanonical chapter from Daniel. We've actually talked about uh, this uh, uh, chapter in another episode of uh, the podcast where we talk about the apocryphal uh, works that are attached to Daniel. Susanna. Also, Uh, our Zephaniah, he mentions Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these are major players in the canonical book of Daniel, as well as a uh, deuterocanonical section from the book as well. These are both exilic period characters, which Zephaniah includes in his prayer in the past tense, calling out to God who uh, you helped, you saved, you rescued, you delivered Susanna and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so, keeping in mind, again, we just came off this study of Zephaniah, and in that study of the biblical Zephaniah, we know he was a pre-exilic prophet. That is, before the Babylonian conquest is when he prophesied. However, the author of the Apocalypse of Zephaniah is seemingly a post-exilic writer who's making mention of these exilic episodes as kind of these long past events. In addition, while I do not doubt the historicity of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I do doubt the historicity of Susanna, at least in terms of uh, a document being that was written by uh, the biblical Daniel. Uh, that document, too, seems to be a post-exilic work which is difficult to date. In fact, Metzger in his book on the Apocrypha says the date of composition is, quote, quite unknown. <laughs> um, <laughs> however, quite. for the Greek text of Susanna to have been uh, circulated, uh, even to Egypt, where the Apocalypse of Zephaniah was probably written, one postulates then an early date for the Apocalypse of Zephaniah to be approximately... Uh, the first century B.C., that first century before Christ. So that gives us our uh, early date edge. 
it's the external evidence which seems to give us our uh, later date edge for dating the apocalypse of Zephaniah. One interesting feature of this work is that uh, there, there may be a citation of it found in one of the writings of the early church uh, fathers, namely Clement of Alexandria in his work Miscellanies, or the Stromata. In Book 5, Chapter 11, Verse 77 of yeah. the Stromata, Miscellanies, by Clement of Alexandria. Yeah, it's at the very end of the chapter. That's right. Sentence, yeah. Um, Clement, he is quoting, and uh, he quotes from Zephaniah, and he just quotes it that way, right? Zephaniah says this, and um, uh, here is the actual quote from uh, Clement of Alexandria. Are not these statements like those of Zephaniah the prophet? And here's the quote. And the Spirit of the Lord took me and brought me up to the fifth heaven, and I beheld angels called lords, and their diadems were set on in the Holy Spirit, and each of them had a throne sevenfold brighter than the light of the rising sun, and they dwelt in temples of salvation and hymned the ineffable Most High God. So that's that's the quotation. Now, scholars looking at uh, this quotation in Clement, they, they do say he uses kind of different phrasing than what is found in the two surviving manuscripts. However, he may be using a different version of the same text. Uh, so that's a, a possibility. So, okay, what if, if Clement of Alexandria has given us our, our upper date for or the upper edge for our dating, when did he live and, and write? Well, Clement of Alexandria lives uh, around A.D. 153 to 217. And he writes his Stromata approximately 193 to 202. Uh, A.D. 193 to 202. Uh, and he cites this now lost portion of Apocalypse of Zephaniah. And assuming a Greek original, again, the Coptic, that's a, a dialect down in Egypt, but assuming a Greek original, this puts the upper edge of the date of the Apocalypse of Zephaniah to somewhere in the 2nd century A.D. And to quote our boy Wintermute in his intro introduction to the Apocalypse of Zephaniah, he Horrible. argues for... That's right. He argues for a pre-AD 70 date, giving what he sees as pro-Edomite sentiments in the Mount Seir ascent in Apocalypse of Zephaniah 3.2. Uh, so uh, that's a lot about uh, the date, but that's, I mean, you want to get the edges. So what are we talking about? First century B.C. to uh, what? Uh, first uh, or even... Uh, somewhere in the second century AD. Those are kind of the edges there, somewhere in there. So, I mean, yeah, we are talking about possibly a contemporary work with the New Testament documents, uh, certainly a contemporary work with some of the other uh, intertestamental literature uh, of that period. So that's what I found, Alex, uh, a long way around the mountain there. <laughs> um, what did you find for the date? Well, I found the same things. Um I will note that I, I guess I favor the early date, right? First century BC, maybe uh, early to mid first century AD. Um, I kind of favor the idea that th this was not Christian influence, but because Christians are the continuation of uh, the Jewish uh, Israeli remnant, um, you have a commonality of beliefs, right? Because uh, you're both using the Old Testament and you're both using uh, other things that have been floating around and 
quoted and written and spoken in the intertestamental period. So we noted in our Zephaniah series that the beginning of Zephaniah's career, uh, I think he mentioned this, it should have been before 633 BC because he mentions in chapter two, the Ethiopians are ruling the South. Well, that kind of comes to an end in 633 BC. So Zephaniah, pre-exilic prophet, that's right. But I noted at the end of Zephaniah, chapter three, that it sounds like Jerusalem's captivity is already underway, which makes the book of Zephaniah more of a collection of the prophet's career, written and spoken by Zephaniah, but at different points in his career. So if Zephaniah, let's say he went into captivity, right? We're just speculating. If he did, and he stayed there long enough to see and hear about Susanna, which I take to be historically real. I take Susanna as a real story. The three youths um, and Daniel. Um, Then he would have been pushing, if he got to see that or hear about that, he would have been pushing 80, 90 years old. So considering, I think, those events, which took place early in Daniel's career, um, I think that's possible. You could make a case for that. So if I really wanted to defend the apocalypse of Zephaniah, which I'm not sure if I really want to, but if I did, (laughs) (laughs) I could see how the uh, continuity of the character, right, the pseudonym Zephaniah, how it could still remain intact, even if it's a pseudepigraphic work written uh, written post-exile. Um, interesting note about Susanna. So this is just like a side note, right? About why, uh, part of why I love, love the story of Susanna. I saw in Rome, in the Christian catacombs, these are the earliest catacombs for, for Christians that we can access. Um, these are tombs from around 120 AD, uh, the catacombs of Priscilla. I saw on the tombs of those Christians, stories painted on the walls, stories from the Bible. And one of the stories that was painted on the wall was the story of Susanna. So uh, Susanna was a wildly popular story in early Christianity, probably because it was a part of the Septuagint, which was the Bible of the church. And I think that's quite a testimony, not just to the popularity, but dare I say also the veracity of the story of Susanna. Uh, Another thing, though. This is sort of a separate explanation for what's going on with the apocalypse of Zephaniah, because, you know, are there timeline issues here? So here's another possibility to make sense out of the timeline. This pseudepigraphic work, the apocalypse of Zephaniah, it may be telling a story of Zephaniah posthumously. In other words, um, in the beginning of the story, there's this unclear fragment, I think, in chapter one, about a funeral procession. And we don't really know whose funeral it is or what the subject is. Uh, Later in the story, we do see that Zephaniah, he undergoes a a judgment in the underworld as if he were already dead. He comes before the accuser. The accuser has his list of sins. And um, Zephaniah, in the story, he's never tasked with anything like we see with other prophets in apocalyptic literature. Like he's never said, hey, tell the people this. Or, hey, write this down. It's for now, uh, uh, not for later. Or it's for later, not you know, not for now. There are never any tasks or jobs given to Zephaniah. It may be that we are to read the Apocalypse of Zephaniah as Zephaniah's story from beyond the grave, communicated 
after he puts on his angelic garments. Um, that would be in line with sort of the way the uh, sort of the way the the story of first Enoch was traditionally thought to be transmitted, that Enoch was taken up by God, he was shown all these things, and it's after his ascension uh, and transformation that he brings this information back down to people on earth. It may be that we are to read Zephaniah's story in the same way, that Zephaniah dies, he goes through judgment, he triumphs over the accuser, he sees these eschatological scenes, and then he brings this message of a posthumous vision back to people on earth, and then that's how we get the story. Now, I'm not saying that that's how we really got the apocalypse of Zephaniah, but that may be the intention behind how we're supposed to read it. Does that make sense? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, uh, (laughs) clear as mud, right? Well, I mean, we're dealing with the date, you know. I mean, that's right. and it's such a big mountain, that's and there true. are di- there are different ways of viewing it, you know. Yeah. All right. Well, we're we're getting close to the chapter summaries, which is the really fun part. So let's uh, keep priming it. Just a few more questions, Nick. What relation does this work have with other writings that we know of? Uh, so specifically, I'm thinking of. Uh, the writings that are contained in our Bibles, right? Old Testament, New Testament documents. Uh, so first of all, um, there was one, I mean, there are several, right? In fact, if you are reading Wintermute's uh, translation, he's got all kinds of connections all over Old Testament and New Testament in the, in the, the margin of the page. Uh, one that I'll just point out is in 2.5 of uh, Apocalypse of Zephaniah, where he talks about the whole world is like a drop of bucket, a, a drop of water hanging from a bucket, and that sounds kind of like an expansion of Isaiah forty verse fifteen. The nations are like a drop from a bucket. Hmm. Uh, so, so you, you get you get um, allusions like that throughout the the whole book of Apocalypse of Zephaniah. Although uh, it is interesting. Um, not only Wintermute, but other writers I was reading uh, their, their articles about this text, they're all in agreement that it doesn't seem like the author of the Apocalypse of Zephaniah was real keen on his Hebrew. And, um, uh, but, I mean, it was uh, no doubt a, a Greek original, uh, if that. So, um, And then how about the relation to the New Testament? This is a, a very interesting one because there's a connection to Jesus here. Uh, still in uh, chapter 2 of the Apocalypse of Zephaniah, two verses 2 through 4 talks about two men walking together, two women working together, and two upon a bed. Um, and just this is Zephaniah kind of looking over the city, and he sees all these people doing kind of these mundane things. And all that sounds strikingly similar to uh, the words of Jesus uh, that are recorded in Matthew 24, verses 40 and 41, also in Luke 17, 34 through 36. Right, the, the two men in a field, or the two women grinding in Matthew, or the, the two in the bed, two people in one bed uh, in Luke. Uh, so it seems like, and this is now uh, Robinson in his article in the Dictionary of New Testament Backgrounds on the Apocalypse of Zeph- uh, Zephaniah, he says that uh, both the Apocalypse of Zephaniah and the Gospels, uh, Gospel accounts, they cite a cautionary proverb uh, concerning the inevitability of death upon people without partiality since the two individuals in those couplets, they're doing the same thing, and yet there's no uh, favoritism, no partiality shown uh, toward them. Our Lord, though, Jesus, 
He actually applies that proverb, assuming it is a kind of cautionary proverb of the time. He cites it and uses it uh, eschatologically. Uh, and uh, the Apocalypse of Zephaniah, though, has kind of a more temporal focus, it seems. But uh, a little difference in the way it's used. But, again, kind of that similar structure is is very in- interesting, very noteworthy. Uh, so... Uh, those are some examples of the relationship to, again, kind of Old Testament and New Testament. What did you see, Alex? Yeah, I think those are good examples. Um, and we'll see more as we get into the chapter summaries. I'm continually impressed with the number of touch points that this work has in common with Revelation, which I guess is logical. They're both apocalyptic literature. Um, and then there's also uh, a really interesting connection to Luke 16, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, and... Um, I, I, I see a connection there and with the Old Testament book of Zechariah that will, again, in the chapter summaries, flesh out in more detail. As we read through the book, Nick, what is the basic structure of the book as we go through it? Uh, Rachel Klippenstein, in her article for the Lexham Bible Dictionary uh, about the Apocalypse of Zephaniah, she offers just a very brief outline of... Uh, the text. Uh, one, part one is kind of chapters one through eight, which is the travel log scenes, and then chapters nine through twelve are the trumpet scenes. Uh, the former are scenes, uh, just a series of scenes, where the author travels to various locations with an angelic guide, but then the, the latter part of the book are a series of scenes that are introduced by an angelic being sounding a trumpet. Uh, our boy, Orville Wintermute, he provides a detailed outline of the book in his introduction as well. Well, I think that's a good, uh, simple way of keeping it in mind. you got your cosmic travels, and then you have your trumpet scenes, and that's the basic structure. And it's not a long book. In fact, we're going to do chapter summaries here. We have uh, the first uh, two segments are just called chapter A and chapter B because they're fragments. And then you have uh, chapters 1 and 2. And so, Nick, why don't you summarize the contents of those chapters for us? All right, let's do it. Let's get into the book itself. Fragment A is the quotation from Clement of Alexandria, which I read earlier in the episode. And uh, it appears to be the initial call for the heavenly journey. Uh, right? He's, he's taken up into the, the fifth heaven, and he sees all those lords and all that. So that's, that's fragment A. Fragment B is the Sahidic fragment. It's a mere nine verses, uh, and it, it's, it, the, that, that text itself is, is uh, uh, somewhat fragmentary. Uh, and so uh, these verses, they detail the author's vision of a soul tormented in Hades. It's an image which produces great terror in the author. And uh, then the angelic guide takes the author to a, a broad place for more visions. Uh, but then the rest of the text is lost at this point. Uh, one note about this fragment is it's the only place in any of the surviving uh, manuscripts which refers to Zephaniah by name. Uh, fragment B, verse 7, Truly I, Zephaniah, saw these things in my vision. Sounds like what John says in Revelation, right? I, John, saw these things. Yeah, yeah, uh, definitely a parallel there. Okay, so then chapters 1 and 2 actually begins the Ecumenic text. And um, 1 is a line and a half about uh, a burial. 
Uh, and then uh, uh, chapter 2 contains a scene which takes place presumably above Jerusalem. He just calls it, uh, uh, what, my town, my city. And it uh, it's that scene, again, where he's kind of surveying people in their mundane activities, right? The two men walking, two women working, all that. So, uh, so that's... That's the beginning here uh, of the apocalypse of Zephaniah. Um, one interesting thing. So if we go back to fragment A, uh, Alex, and um, again, the, the quotation from Clements Stromata. A spirit took me and brought me up into the fifth heaven. Uh, what's the fifth heaven? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, various degrees of heaven are mentioned in both biblical and non-biblical texts, obviously this being a non-biblical example. In general, uh, we see in the Bible heaven mentioned in three levels, the sky where the birds fly, uh, a portion above that where the sun, moon, and stars dwell. And by the way, in the ancient writers' minds, that's not millions of light years away. It's, it's much closer than that, though still unreachable. And then there's this third level that's above the stars, and that's the portion where Yahweh dwells. It's the highest heaven. And Paul, he mentions going to the third heaven in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2. So we have this idea of three heavens in the Bible. But some pseudepigraphic works, uh, such as this one, other ones, they have different layers of heaven beyond three. Uh, some works have seven layers of heaven. Uh, others' works have ten layers of heaven. I think even in a New Testament pseudepigrapha work, uh, I think the Apocalypse of Paul is what it's called, there are ten levels of heaven. So for what, whatever reason, these writers, they divided the upper cosmos into different levels, and each level became more difficult to attain to as it approached the dwelling place of Yahweh, which is reminiscent of the earthly reflection of Yahweh's presence that we see in the Old Testament temple, like you have the outer court and then the inner court and then the holy place and then the most holy place, and each level becomes more qualifying uh, to enter into and more sacred. So it's interesting that um, if you compare this to Revelation, uh, John, he never has to go through levels. He just shows up, boom, uh, straight to Jesus, chapter 1, he gets to see, boom, straight the throne of Yahweh, chapter, uh, I think, chapter 5, chapter 4 and 5. And uh, you don't have this uh, intermediary uh, levels. John just goes straight to the source of Yahweh's presence. And I think that's um, an important Christian understanding of how we come before the presence of Yahweh. Now, as Christians, uh, there's there's no levels we got to work through. We have direct access to the throne. And we've known that as Christians, but with the backdrop of this Jewish understanding that there are levels that separate you, um, that's significant, I think, for the Christian to understand how awesome that privilege would now seem to them with that Jewish background. Um, yeah. So in chapter 2, like I said, he, uh, our Zephaniah, he's taken up over all my city. And uh, again, presumably that's Jerusalem. Alex, why is Zephaniah taken above the city? Yeah, that's interesting. The entire uh, idea really reminds me of what happens to Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 8 and the chapters following where he has a series of visions, right? So again, Ezekiel uh, reflecting this apocalyptic format this style 
And so in Ezekiel 8, an angel comes and he grabs Ezekiel by the head, uh, by the hair, and he lifts him up into the sky and he shows him an aerial view of his city, which uh, is Jerusalem. And so this floating experience may be signaling to the reader that this is an out-of-body experience. And remember when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, when he went to the third heaven, he says, I don't know if I was in my body or not in my body. He wasn't sure. But there were these signals, I think, that showed someone, ah, this is out-of-body. So it seems to be an experience shared by Ezekiel and in Zephaniah. Zephaniah likely relying upon uh, the apocalypse of Zephaniah, likely relying upon uh, scene, the scene from Ezekiel 8. So, Nick, this first section, there are a few biblical connections. What did you see? Well, just uh, the one that I've already mentioned. The two men walking together, and they're, they're talking also. Um, Zephaniah sees two women grinding together at the mill, uh, saw two upon a bed, and... Um, uh, again, that's that's uh, connection to uh, the connection to be made to Christ in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. Uh, again, uh, which I already mentioned earlier. What other connections did you see? Yeah, the scene where the thrones are set up for the lords in the fifth heaven. Uh, that's to me very similar to the thrones that are set up for the twenty-four elders in Revelation four. Um, I mentioned the journey of Paul to the third heaven in 2 Corinthians 12. It's similar here to the fifth heaven. Uh, the aerial view of Jerusalem in Ezekiel 8, similar to Zephaniah's experience here. And also the um, statement that there is no darkness existing in the place of the righteous. That idea is very reminiscent of several portions within John's writings, not only his gospel, but also his epistles. So that's what I saw. All right, let's move on to uh, chapters 3 through 5 of the Apocalypse of Zephaniah. Give us a, a summary of those. what's in those chapters, Alex. Sure. So in Zephaniah uh, chapter 3, the Apocalypse of Zephaniah chapter 3, Zephaniah is transported to Mount Seir by his angelic tour guide of the cosmos in order to see the righteous. And there he learns that angels write down the deeds of the righteous in a manuscript which the Lord Almighty then receives, and he writes the names of the righteous in his book called the Book of the Living. However, there is the accuser, and he likewise receives angelic manuscripts full of the wicked deeds of man, providing the accuser with ample prosecutorial evidence for man's day of judgment in Hades. So chapter 4 brings us to our next stop then on Zephaniah's journey, he sees a broad place full of the ungodly dropped off for punishment after their initial three days of floating around in the sky. Zephaniah becomes terrified of what are essentially what I would call spiritual prison guards, and they escort wicked souls to this broad place. The creatures have the face of a leopard, the tusks of a boar, and blood-red eyes. Ooh. And they apparently also have nice long hair, like a woman. And they carry a whip of fire, which I think is kind of like the Balrog from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> you shall not pass. Anyway, the angel reassures Zephaniah that the creatures, prison guards, whatever they are, they're not going to hurt him because Zephaniah is pure in the eyes of the Lord. And the word for pure there is the same word for saint or sanctified. Remember the process of sanctification we talked about in our New Testament episodes? 
So Zephaniah, he's sanctified, he's pure. And then this is really funny. The angel tells the creatures, uh, hey, yo, get off my guy. You're making him hot. Get out of here. You're freaking him out. And then they run away. And so he doesn't didn't really say if he said that or not, but I, I imagine that's <laughs> somewhere along the lines of what he told him. So they run away, and then chapter 5, Zephaniah gets to tour an indescribable heavenly city. Uh, and It's indescribable because he doesn't describe it. The only description we get is that the city is in the shape of a square. It has bronze gates, and uh, the gates are opened by the angelic tour guide, who then, once upon in the city, he, he transforms himself uh, while in the city. I don't know what the transformation is. Does he go super saiyan? Does he power up? I don't know. In another scene, though... Zephaniah comes before a different set of bronze gates. Ah, and these ones, they're bolted. They're bolted down with bronze, and they're locked with iron bars. And these gates, uh, they have a lot of fire coming out of them. And so there's actually so much fire coming out of these gates all around it. It's being, the fire is being spewed out 50 stadia long. Uh, How long is that? That's about five miles. That's a lot of fire. So that's chapters... uh, three four and five okay so back in chapter three uh this uh this angel takes zephaniah uh up to uh mount seer uh why would zephaniah be taken to mount seer yeah that's a good question so uh winter mute right he was like well this is um this is like a good press for the edomians the edomites um I don't know if that's necessarily what's going on. I think that this location, really what it does is recalls the original place of rising from which Yahweh came to save Israel out of Egypt. If you uh, note Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2, Seir is where Yahweh rose up with his uh, cloud and lightning and angels to come rescue the Israelites. In scholarly terms, this idea that Yahweh comes up out of Mount Seir, Mount Paran, this is sometimes called the Yahweh from the South tradition. And so I think it's a throwback to the original salvation that Yahweh brought to his people Israel. And it helps the story by relating Zephaniah's own salvation, which he'll experience as he overcomes the accuser. So uh, the connections to Scripture abound um, in, in this section as well. And one that stood out to me, 4-2, thousands of thousands, myriads of myriads of angels, which is uh, similar to what we read uh, about the numbering of angels, the number of angels that John sees in the Revelation. Right. Um, what other connections did you see in in this section? Well, now that you mention it, that myriads of angels at his side, um, that's a Deuteronomy 33 mm-hmm. connection again, um, where he rises up out of Mount Seir, especially when you compare it to the Septuagint. Um, another connection to the uh, biblical text is that um, Yahweh does have a book of life. That's seen in Exodus 32, 32, um, Psalm 40, verse 7, Psalm 69, verse 28, Daniel 7, verse 10. In fact, that Daniel verse, it gives the impression that there are many books um, sort of leading more credence to there's the book of life, and then there's also each person's book, which has their deeds written in it, um, which is actually you know coming to my mind now. That's the relevant to what Jesus says about the resurrection in John's gospel, right? In John's gospel, he says, um, when in the resurrection of the dead, uh, you'll be judged uh, for eternal life, those who did the good deeds, uh, to eternal destruction, those who did the bad deeds. Where is that at? Is that John 5? 
think it's John 5. Anyway. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, so there are other um, many other Old Testament verses that have this book of Yahweh uh, imagery. But there are New Testament verses like uh, Philippians 4.3 talks about the book of life, Revelation 3.5, Revelation 13.8. So that's a real thing. And Zephaniah's, uh, the Apocalypse of Zephaniah incorporates that into his uh, into his story. Also, um, in the in the book of Zephaniah, those weird, scary-looking prison guards with the animal f- facial features, but having long hair like a woman, um, some of those descriptions sound very similar to the uh, locusts that are released from the abyss in Revelation chapter 9, and um, especially the hair like a woman part. Uh, that's also going to be a description of the accuser in the uh, next chapter. And also, um, the city, the heavenly city that he gets to go to, it's laid out like a square. Well, that matches the heavenly city of Jerusalem described in Revelation 21, verse 16. So a lot of Revelation connections in this section. Uh, Nick, why don't you summarize for us what happens chapters 6, 7, and 8? Sure thing. So chapter 6 is the descent into Hades. Uh, It is described as a place of sulfur and fire, which, again, produces palpable fear in our Zephaniah. But it gets worse. A great and ferocious-looking angelic being shows up. The accuser. Apparently, this is yeah, the, the guardian of Hades, the accuser. He approaches Zephaniah. He's got a body like a serpent, teeth like a bear. They're, they're on the outside of his mouth is, is how they're described. Hair like a lion, but also like a woman as well. Uh, in terror, Zephaniah cries out to God for salvation. And then an angel shows up named Eremiel, and Zephaniah attempts to worship him. But Eremiel says, don't do that. And uh, the angel tells Zephaniah he has seen Hades. Uh, chapter 7 contains the vision of two manuscripts. The first manuscript has all the sins of Zephaniah from his youth up to that point, And mostly, I guess we would call them sins of omission. Like he missed a fast day, he missed visiting an orphan or a widow, he missed an opportunity to pray, stuff like that. And this revelation brings Zephaniah to prostrate himself and beg God's mercy. And Arimiel exhorts Zephaniah that he has prevailed over Hades. And then comes the second manuscript, and that second manuscript is... Uh, well, uh, it's it's lost. Um, the, the the text there's a, it's called a, what a lacuna here, uh, where the text is actually missing. There's two pages of the manuscript, the, the actual manuscript of the Apocalypse of Zephaniah, which are missing. And uh, Wintermute comments that he, this is probably um, the second manuscript probably contained Zephaniah's good works and perhaps a prayer of thanksgiving from Zephaniah, but. We don't know because we just we don't have those pages in the manuscript. Me personally, I think that second manuscript that Zephaniah receives probably contains the missing twenty third chapter of Revelation, which records <laughs> the second war in heaven. And, oh wait, uh, that's actually the plot <laughs> of the movie, The Prophecy, starring Christopher Walken and Viggo Mortensen. Never mind. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so chapter eight. Uh, this uh, very short chapter, it betrays heavy Egyptian influence. You have uh, a boat 
taking Zephaniah on this praise cruise uh, with about a billion angels praising God, presumably, and Zephaniah joins in with him. And, and then you have um, the weighing of good and evil in uh, a balance. That, that's mentioned here. And that is a theme that's prominent in Egyptian underworld judgment. In, uh, uh, in, in the Egyptian view, a, when you died, your soul would go and stand before the Hall of Two Truths. Uh, Thoth announced your deeds. And then Osiris would weigh your heart on the scales of ma'at against the feather of truth. And if your heart was lighter than the feather, well and good, you went on to bliss. If not, the crocodile-headed amet would eat your soul. <laughs> and there was also fire involved, too. Um, that's right. Take that, Captain so, Hook. That's, <laughs> that's right. So... Uh, all that when I read all that, it was it, that's what that's what came to mind. I was like, oh, I remember reading about that, and then sure enough, I had a document about the Hall of Two Truths. So, <laughs> hey, wait, isn't there uh, a boat ride in Egypt or not Egypt, uh, Greek, uh, Hades? You got to get across the River Styx, right? Right. You got to pay the boatman, right? That's right. That's why they put the coins on their eyes on the dead body to pay the ferryman to cross Styx. Gotcha. Interesting. So rivers, boats. Okay. couple quick questions, Nick, about those uh, sections. You introduced the uh, character Eremiel. So who is Eremiel again? A.K.A. Jeremiel, right? Um, that's uh, another uh, name for him. This is uh, the name of an archangel that appears in the apocryphal book Second uh, Esdras, uh, 4 verse 36. Um, his name means El Hurls or El Appoints. He may also go under the name uh, Ramael, Ramiel, or Rumiel, uh, since the Syriac version of Second Esdras reads Ramael instead of Jeremiel. In Second Esdras, Jeremiel he fields a question about the dead especially pertaining to judgment. And in the Apocalypse of Zephaniah, Arimiel is over the abyss and Hades. So uh, that's a bit about uh, this angelic being, uh, bonus-featured creature, I guess, this week. Um, <laughs> what did you find about Arimiel? Yeah, in addition to what you found, uh, Arimiel uh, is... He's one of the seven archangels named in 1 Enoch chapter 20, verse 7. And there he's called Rimiel. So Rimiel, Rimiel, same guy. And in 1 Enoch 20, verse 7, he is his authority, his job. He is set over those who will rise, referring to the idea of a resurrection, right? So he's over the disembodied who are going to join in the resurrection. And that fits the... Um, context and description that he has in the apocalypse of zephaniah where he's in hades and he's he's um yeah he's this underworld guide and brings them to uh yeah brings them to the the disembodied righteous so you got a lot of names man yeah yeah, yeah Remy, so probably yeah i don't know different lots of different dialects going on with these traditions and so uh Remiel. okay i like Remiel because it reminds me of gambit remy <laughs> hey, mon ami. Okay. Uh, yeah, so uh, in 8, what, 8, 3, I myself put on an angelic garment. Um, what is the angelic garment that Zephaniah gets to wear? 
Yeah, that's an interesting thing. It doesn't explain it. It just says that he, you know, he passed the the uh, judgment. He triumphed over the accuser, and he gets his angelic garment now that he gets to wear. Uh, I think it's likely a veiled reference to Zephaniah's new body. Uh, he gets to have a form of embodiment. He's made like the angels. Uh, the same reference, I think, is made in Revelation 6, where the martyrs are given white robes to wear while they wait for the day of judgment. Um, Jesus makes a reference to our becoming like the angels in Luke chapter 20, verse 36. Um, so I think it's a, it's a veiled reference to embodiment and to the new body that he's going to get. Uh, what, do you, what do you think? I don't have uh, any idea. Not the foggiest. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it, why don't but, you tell us about so, the biblical connections in this section? What what uh, Old Testament, New Testament connections did you see? Yeah, uh, real quick though, one of the things that comes up is it in your section? One of your so they're having a discussion, and he's like, "Oh, so they get hair and bodies here, right?" And he's like, "Yeah, yeah they get yeah. body and hair." Yeah, it's in the next section. So uh, that may be what's in view here as well. Anyway, biblical connections. Several to the New Testament uh, book of Revelation. Uh, In Apocalypse of Zephaniah, Hades is a sea of fire. In Revelation, Hades is thrown into a lake of fire. The angelic order, don't worship me. Uh, Here in this section, that answers to the angelic exhortation, worship God. When John tries to worship uh, an angel in 22 verse 9 of Revelation, the manuscripts which contain people's deeds, that parallels, uh, seems to me, the books that are open at the great white throne judgment. And those books contain what people have done, uh, chapter 20 and verse 12 of Revelation. Those are some connections I saw. What about you, Alex? Uh, I'm just commenting on the uh, Hades part in the... I know in Greek literature, Hades is both the name of the deity who has authority in the underworld and the general term for the underworld itself. And so I don't know if that is maybe what Revelation has going on. You're throwing this this character who has authority in Hades. You're throwing him into the lake of fire. I don't know. Kind of the, the personification of, yeah. Yeah. So the description of the great angel Eremiel, uh, it does have similar attributes of the strong angel mentioned in revelation chapter 10 his face is like the sun his feet are like pillars of fire Um, but it also matches the description of jesus in revelation chapter 1 where his feet are like bronze and he has a golden sash around his chest which is also similar to the man in linen in daniel chapter 10 so there are i think these similar stock terms that are used for uh, good angelic beings and uh, scary and bad angelic beings. So it's it's very interesting. But that's that's the only other thing I saw. Bring us home, Alex. Chapters nine through twelve. All right, interesting stuff. Chapter nine describes the rest of the cosmic boat ride in Hades. The great angel with uh, Zephaniah. He blows a trumpet three times and he announces Zephaniah's triumph over the accuser and the abyss and Hades. Next stop, cross over the crossing place. What's that? I don't know. This ambiguous description, I think, likely refers to the dwelling place of the righteous, uh, but not necessarily heaven, as we'll see in the next chapter. I take it to be the place we see Abraham and Lazarus in Luke 16. And Zephaniah is crossing over the inseparable chasm that the rich man could not cross. So during this excursion, Zephaniah, uh, he's happy, he's joyful. He wants to give his angel friend a big hug. But the, uh, the glory of the angel was too much for Zephaniah to approach. However, they land on the shores of the righteous, 
and the angel gets out and he's hanging out for a minute with his good friends uh like uh the patriarchs abraham isaac and jacob and the uh the ascended ones enoch and elijah and uh and david so they're all hanging out they're buddies and then um back to work chapter 10 begins with the great angel blowing the trumpet again this time he aims his trumpet up at heaven heaven opens up before them at a specific place in the sky where the sun rises and sets and instead of looking up into heaven to see what's there zephaniah looks out and down and he sees the ocean of sulfur rising up from hades all the way up to the clouds in the sky which sounds terrifying the fiery ocean he looks closer and he sees that it's full of souls sinking in it experiencing specific punishments for their particular downfall. Those who had accepted bribes were bound hand and foot. Uh, Those who charged interest on loans were covered with mats of fire. Those who heard the word of God but were not perfected or sanctified in it, they were blind and crying out. And the angel confirms to Zephaniah that these souls, they indeed have some temporary embodiment with which to endure their punishment as the Lord sees fit. But on a brighter note, Zephaniah finds out that these souls, they do have time to still repent, all the way up, in fact, until the final day of judgment. Chapter 11 continues the scene of souls and torture, uh, but then another multitude of people, they come out, and they start to pray for the suffering souls. In fact, they come out every day at a specific hour, and the patriarchs themselves, they come out to pray for mercy on behalf of the souls in bondage. And the great angel, he joins them in prayer. In fact, a trumpet sound goes out at that hour of prayer, and all the righteous on the earth, they hear it, and they join in the simultaneous intercessory prayer session. And as my Catholic friends would say, they're praying for souls in purgatory. Chapter 12, the great angel blows his horn towards the earth and towards heaven, presumably for the hour of prayer. And Zephaniah Uh, He's not permitted to stay and watch all of the righteous gather together. For some reason, this particular scene is highly secretive, and it's something that he doesn't get to see until the very end, until the end of all, all days. And so the angel explains that Zephaniah will have to wait for the Day of Judgment when God destroys both heaven and earth, and then you'll get to see all of the righteous who answer the trumpet call. Uh, There are large Portions of text missing from the Apocalypse of Zephaniah, and the story just kind of ends right there. It's not the official ending, but that's the ending as we have it right now in our manuscripts. And so we don't really know uh, what else happens in the ending. But that's it. That's the book of the Apocalypse of Zephaniah. There it is. Yeah. And so we have some questions then from this section, which I think is the most sort of action-packed section, and uh, especially with the, the ocean of souls being tormented in it. So, Nick, um, just give us your thoughts, right? If there are souls in torment, then how are they, while being tormented, able to repent? How does that work? Well, uh, so here's here's an idea which is not in agreement with Scripture. Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed unto people once to die and then face judgment. Uh, David in the Psalms says that in Sheol, which, a.k.a., that's Hades, uh, in the the Hebrew uh, uh, concept, uh, there's no praise. Other translations say no confession. And that's a text which has typically been interpreted to affirm there's no repentance after this life is over. 
And of course, the Lord himself, uh, he taught that there is an impassable, a great chasm separating the righteous dead from the unrighteous dead in Hades in the parable that he told about the rich man in Lazarus, Luke 16, verse 26, especially uh, the bit where he has Abraham saying, none may cross from there to us. And so uh, my view of this uh, 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 vision part in Apocalypse of Zephaniah is this, is this does not square with what uh, Scripture teaches about the Hadean realm. Agree or disagree? <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna take the other side of the argument. I'm gonna try okay. to defend a theological position uh, with this this vision here. So I'll go on the other hand, right? On the other hand, I don't think anything violates Hebrews nine twenty seven here because the souls here they have died and they have yet to face the final day of judgment. And so Hebrews is right. It's appointed for man to die and then judgment. But there's a lot of time between death and the final day of judgment because the final day of judgment hasn't gotten here yet. So for some people who have been dead, there's been a lot of time. And what happens in between death and the final day of judgment, that is not really commented on in the book of Hebrews. I think it is commented on in the book of 1 Peter, though. If you go to 1 Peter 4, 6, it refers to people already having been judged in the flesh. And I think that means they died. They were judged in the flesh, they died. But the gospel, it says, is still preached even to them. And so it's a fascinating concept to think that the gospel may be preached right now in the underworld. Uh, it would certainly make one do a double take on Philippians 2.10 about every knee bowing in heaven, earth, and under the earth. It's my understanding that on the final day of judgment, the underworld will be emptied. Uh, Hades will give up all of those within it and people will stand judgment before Yahweh. If knees are bowing in the underworld, then it's likely before the day of judgment. Uh, my guess is that the uh, intercessory prayer is to be seen in the Apocalypse of Zephaniah as the mechanism by which the souls are able to repent. I'm not sure how it actually mechanically works, but the author and the audience, I think they must have had something in mind. Um, in the New Testament, uh, if I'm right about all of this, then it's it's not just the intercessory prayer, but First Peter four six. It's the actual preaching to these people that saves them uh, while dead in the underworld. So that's what I think would be the the other side of this. Not necessary, and, and not even getting into the, the the official like Catholic teaching on purgatory. I'm keeping that separate for another talk, but <laughs> <laughs> that's sort of what I see. Now, Nick, back to the intercessory prayer, then, uh, what do you think that accomplishes? Uh, so uh, I guess I'd refer our uh, diligent listeners to uh, our discussion when we talked about James chapter 5, especially verse 16. Also, my commentary uh, available on L-I-F-E from the pulpit.wordpress.com on James 5.16. Because James says there, pray for one another, and that's uh, that's the idea there of intercessory prayer. You're interceding on someone else's behalf, and we have a long discussion. We had a long discussion about that uh, and what's going on there. But that that's one text, right? That that deals with praying for one another, and um, I know specifically, you know, what is apparently in view here in Apocalypse of Zephaniah's intercessory prayer for the dead. Um, I don't agree with that. Uh, if we're going to talk intercessory prayer, it's what we do for one another in the here and the now. Um, intercessory prayer, if I remember correctly, the uh, for the dead, 
praying for the dead is uh, a concept from the apocryphal book of Second Maccabees. That's right. And, um, yeah. So you don't find that anywhere else in Scripture, uh, this idea of praying for the dead. So um, my idea of intercessory prayer is going to be what we do for one another in the here and now. You say? Yeah, I think if we're trying to see what, what was the audience supposed to take away with this, how did they understand it, my guess is that they would be thinking that if if the soul in torment in this ocean, you know, being tormented, if they are truly repentant, then I suppose that the prayer of the righteous person, that acts as a message for petition of release. So the souls in torment, they want to repent, they're repentant in their heart, but they can't bring that petition before Yahweh, so the righteous bring the petition on their behalf, and then if accepted, they're, I guess, released out of this bondage in the underworld. That's what I would assume, and they have a time period by which they can do that, and that is until the final day of judgment. Um, but, man, I don't know. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say officially I don't know, but that's kind of how I try to make sense out of it. If I take the elements of the book here in, in the Apocalypse of Zephaniah to be elements already believed to be true by the audience. So, um, yeah, what else? Yeah, one, once again, the, the biblical connections in this section abound. Um, I mentioned the, um, the, the hair and the body, right? Uh, body and hair. Uh, that's, uh, what is that, 10, 13, and 14? Uh-huh. Uh, there in that section, and and that I mean, Paul talks at length about the resurrection body. Doesn't mention anything about hair, but um, uh, kind of that spiritual body that is to come for us. Uh, so definitely connection there to First Corinthians fifteen. Uh, what else do you see here? Yeah, I think the most obvious connection is the angel blowing a trumpet. Uh, that is throughout the whole Bible, especially Revelation, but also. Um, in some other New Testament eschatological verses like Matthew twenty four thirty one about the trumpet blowing uh, being blown by the angel in the last day, also First Thessalonians four sixteen, um, so that's uh, trumpet blowing that's reminiscent there. The connections I mentioned in Luke sixteen about Lazarus and the rich man, you have a lot of connections there, especially in this section. Um, and then the eschatological judgment scene where the book trails off, it mentions uh, in the last sentence trees being uprooted and destroyed which I think is likely a reference to nations. And uh, that same kind of tree imagery uh, is in Revelation 8 and 9, uh, chapter 8, chapter 9, and then back in Daniel, Daniel chapter 4. So lots of connections, lots of connections. So whoever whoever did write this book, um, they had a good handle on their Bible, not the Hebrew Bible, uh, but probably their Septuagint and maybe even... As we spe- as we mentioned earlier, maybe even a handle on um, on Christian writings on on New Testament writings. Any final thoughts, Nick? Before we move on to the featured creature. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, we upholstered it pretty well. I think so too. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's the apocalypse of Zephaniah. If you ever wanted to uh, know what in the world that was about, so uh, there it is. Now it's time for our favorite segment, the Featured Creature. Featured Featured Creature. creature. And this week's Featured Creature is the Aluka. The Aluka, or the leech, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 30, verses 14 and 15. What do you think about Aluka, Nick? Yeah, that's right. Uh, Specifically verse uh, 15 here, the leech has two daughters, give and give. 
leech. That's the word there, the Aluka. Um, and what I found was, well, there are, uh, well, there's a linguistic connection between leech, uh, the Hebrew term there, Aluka, and a related Arabic noun, which can be in, interpreted as referring to a kind of demon. And while it's been conjectured that this sense may be in the Hebrew term there in Proverbs 30, verse 15, uh, the context of, of Proverbs 30, I believe it permits for the correct tran- the current translation of leech. And uh, I think it makes further speculation unnecessary. Um, in addition, the Septuagint translates the word as leech. Uh, there it's uh, Proverbs 24.50 in the Septuagint. But, uh, and that's a reading that is supported in several Greek classics, notably Herodotus and uh, Arateus. And so um, I'm inclined to, to see here just it's a, it's a leech. Uh, a leech, uh, nothing more than that, that creature that is in uh, the world that we are familiar with. But did you find something else? Nick, if further speculation were unnecessary, then this would be the most boring <laughs> featured creature ever. <laughs> we have an audience here. They want to know what the Alukai is. We already spent a bunch of time speculating with Apocalypse <laughs> Zephaniah, but... By all means. Cherry on the top. Here we go. <clears throat> so, all right. When you get in the Proverbs chapter 30, verse 15 has the aluka, the translated as the leech. It's the preceding verse, though, that makes it an interesting case study, case study because verse 14 says, There is a kind of man whose teeth are like swords, his jaw teeth like knives, to devour the afflicted from the earth and the needy from among men. Uh, I mean, what is this, uh, a scene from the interview with a vampire? This is scary stuff going on here. Then it's verse 15 that says, The leech has two daughters, give and give. There are three things that will not be satisfied, four that will not say enough. So the four insatiable elements that uh, are listed in verse 16, it's Sheol, the barren womb, the earth with water, uh, and fire. I propose that the leech and the two daughters, that's the end of verse 14. That's how it should be anyway. And the second half of verse 15 should be the beginning of verse 16. So I think there's some problems going on with the way we've numbered the verses. So I think the description of verse 14 is the description of the aluka or the leech and its two daughters. And so that would be what we would think uh, of as modern day vampires. So some people have proposed that since the uh, leech has two mouths that uh, one on each end of its body that the two daughters are thus the two mouths of the leech i think that's a pretty creative interpretation however what keeps me pondering though that it's something more than that is that if you look at proverbs 30 as a whole it's not written by solomon it's written by a guy named agur and the scholars uh over the years they've noticed that many of the names and the words in proverbs 30 as a whole they're not quite what they appear to be. And so there's good reason to be uh, uh, to, to be looking for uh, a meaning beyond the surface word because of just the way it's written as a whole. So as mentioned by you, I think, aluka is also an Arabic word that can be re- uh, interpreted to refer to a vampire-like creature, a demonic-like creature. And so considering that the ancient Near Eastern conception of life force residing within the blood and the uh, cases we see where deities consume the life force 
in even in ritual contexts, it's not surprising that demons would be thought of in similar terms, that these supernatural beings, um, the malevolent ones, the evil ones, they want to drink your blood. They want to steal your life force. So this understanding of Aluka as a vampire, which, by the way, if anybody's going to write another vampire story, please use the name Aluka. It's like the best character name ever. So the understanding of Aluka as a vampire, it has taken root in pop culture and occultic circles. So uh, you may not be familiar with this uh, Swedish rock band, but their name is Therion, which is the Greek word for wild beasts, which often refers to demons in the Bible. So Therion, Swedish rock band, they have a hit song called The Wine of Aluka. In other words, blood. Yuck. So if a Swedish rock band offers you a glass of wine, don't do it. It's probably a glass of blood. Other popular songs by Therion include... Uh, the Rise of Sodom and Gomorrah, and hit song, The Theme of Antichrist. Seriously, what is wrong with these people? <laughs> what in the world? So, very you know, interesting uh, pop culture references to the featured creature, Aluka, and that's our featured creature for the week. Yeah, I, I try to stay up on my Swedish symphonic metal, but uh, <laughs> I guess I've missed Therion. I'm surprised you didn't jump on that. Come on. <laughs> Therion. Uh... uh <laughs> Well, Nick, what do, uh, what do the people need to know about the podcast? You can find it in the Apple Podcast and also the Google Play Music uh, stores, respectively. Just search uh, Swordplay in either one of those, depending upon your particular devices. And uh, you'll find the podcast there. You can download them to your device, take them with you on the go, play them at double speed and get through them quicker than an hour and whatever this is right now. <laughs> um, uh, also, um, leave a review there. That'll help us uh, boost the ratings there. Share it on social media. Get the word out about the podcast uh, so that uh, more and more folks can listen and, and hopefully be encouraged and built up uh, through our ministries. Alex, if folks have a question, where can they send it? Please send it to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. That's swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear what you think, and we appreciate you tuning in for another episode of Swordplay, the Apocalypse of Zephaniah. Interesting. We might cover more pseudepigraphic works later on, uh, but we will see what happens. We'll see you, though, next time on another episode of Swordplay. Swordplay.